Section 19 The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Transcendental Doctrine of Elements Part 2nd Transcendental Logic First Division Transcendental Analytic Book 2 Transcendental Doctrine of the Faculty of Judgment or Analytic of Principles Chapter 3 of the ground of the division of all objects into phenomena and noumena. Appendix. Remark on the amphiboly of the conceptions of reflection. Let me be allowed to term the position which we assign to a conception, either in the sensibility or in the pure understanding, the transcendental place. In this manner, the appointment of the position which must be taken by each conception according to the difference in its use, and the directions for determining this place to all conceptions according to rules, would be a transcendental topic, a doctrine which would thoroughly shield us from the surreptitious devices of the pure understanding and the delusions which thence arise, as it would always distinguish to what faculty of cognition each conception properly belonged. Every conception, every title, under which many cognitions rank together, may be called a logical place. Upon this is based the logical topic of Aristotle, of which teachers and rhetoricians could avail themselves, in order, under certain titles of thought, to observe what would best suit the matter they had to treat, and thus enable themselves to quibble and talk with fluency and an appearance of profundity. Transcendental topic, on the contrary, contains nothing more than the above-mentioned four titles, of all comparison and distinction, which differ from categories in this respect. They do not represent the object according to that which constitutes its conception, quantity, reality but set forth merely the comparison of representations which precedes our conceptions of things. But this comparison requires a previous reflection, that is, a determination of the place to which the representations of the things which are compared belong, whether to wit they are cogitated by pure understanding or given by sensibility. Conceptions may be logically compared without the trouble of inquiring to what faculty their objects belong, whether as nomina to the understanding or as phenomena to sensibility. If, however, we wish to employ these conceptions in respect of objects, previous transcendental reflection is necessary. Without this reflection, I should make a very unsafe use of these conceptions and construct pretended synthetical propositions 
which critical reason cannot acknowledge, and which are based solely upon a transcendental amphiboly, that is, upon a substitution of an object of pure understanding for a phenomenon. For want of this doctrine of transcendental topic, and consequently deceived by the amphiboly of the conceptions of reflection, the celebrated Leibniz constructed an intellectual system of the world, or rather believed himself competent to cognize the internal nature of things by comparing all objects merely with the understanding and the abstract formal conceptions of thought. Our table of the conceptions of reflection gives us the unexpected advantage of being able to exhibit the distinctive peculiarities of his system in all its parts, and at the same time of exposing the fundamental principle of this peculiar mode of thought, which rested upon naught but a misconception. He compared all things with each other merely by means of conceptions, and naturally found no other differences than those by which the understanding distinguishes its pure conceptions one from another. The conditions of sensuous intuition, which contain in themselves their own means of distinction, he did not look upon as primitive because sensibility was to him but a confused mode of representation and not any particular source of representations. A phenomenon was for him the representation of the thing in itself, although distinguished from cognition by the understanding only in respect of the logical form the former with its usual want of analysis containing, according to him, a certain mixture of collateral representations in its conception of a thing, which it is the duty of the understanding to separate and distinguish. In one word, Leibniz intellectualized phenomena just as Locke, in his system of nogony, if I may be allowed to make use of such expression, sensualized the conceptions of the understanding, that is to say, declared them to be nothing more than empirical or abstract conceptions of reflection, instead of seeking in the understanding and sensibility two different sources of representations, which, however, can present us with objective judgments of things only in conjunction. Each of these great men recognized but one of these faculties, which, in their opinion, applied immediately to the things in themselves, the other having no duty but that of confusing or arranging the representations of the former. Accordingly, the objects of sense were compared by Leibniz as things in general, merely in the understanding. First, 
he compares them in regard to their identity or difference as judged by the understanding. As, therefore, he considered merely the conceptions of objects and not their position in intuition, in which alone objects can be given and left quite out of sight the transcendental locale of these conceptions. Whether, that is, their object ought to be classed among phenomena or among things in themselves, it was to be expected that he should extend the application of the principle of indiscernibles, which is valid solely of conceptions of things in general, to objects of sense, mundus phenomenon, and that he should believe that he had thereby contributed in no small degree to extend our knowledge of nature. In truth, if I cognize in all its inner determinations a drop of water as a thing in itself, I cannot look upon one drop as different from another. If the conception of the one is completely identical with that of the other, but if it is a phenomenon in space, it has a place not merely in the understanding among conceptions, but also in sensuous external intuition in space. And in this case, the physical locale is a matter of indifference in regard to the internal determinations of things, and one place, B, may contain a thing which is perfectly similar and equal to another in a place, A just as well as if the two things were in every respect different from each other. Difference of place without any other conditions makes the plurality and distinction of objects as phenomena not only possible in itself, but even necessary. Consequently, the above so-called law is not a law of nature, it is merely an analytical rule for the comparison of things by means of mere conceptions. Second, the principle, quote, realities as simple affirmations never logically contradict each other, end quote, is a proposition perfectly true respecting the relation of conceptions but whether as regards nature or things in themselves, of which we have not the slightest conception, is without any the least meaning. For real opposition in which A, B, is equal zero, exists everywhere, an opposition that is in which one reality united with another in the same subject annihilates the effects of the other, a fact which is constantly brought before our eyes by the different antagonistic actions and operations in nature, which nevertheless, as depending on real forces, must be called realitates phenomena. General mechanics can even present us with the empirical condition of this opposition 
in an a priori rule, as it directs its attention to the opposition in the direction of forces, a condition of which the transcendental conception of reality can tell us nothing. Although M. Leibniz did not announce this proposition with precisely the pomp of a new principle, he yet employed it for the establishment of new propositions, and his followers introduced it into their Leibnizio-Wolfian system of philosophy. According to this principle, for example, all evils are but consequences of the limited nature of created beings, that is, negations, because these are the only opposite of reality. In the mere conception of a thing in general, this is really the case, but not in things as phenomena. In like manner, the upholders of this system deem it not only possible, but natural also, to connect and unite all reality in one thing, because they acknowledge no other sort of opposition than that of contradiction, by which the conception itself of a thing is annihilated, and find themselves unable to conceive an opposition of reciprocal destruction, so to speak, in which one real cause destroys the effect of another, and the conditions of whose representation we meet only in sensibility. Third, the Leibnizian monadology has really no better foundation than on this philosopher's mode of falsely representing the difference of the internal and external solely in relation to the understanding. Substances in general must have something inward which is therefore free from external relations, consequently from that of composition also. The simple, that which can be represented by a unit, is therefore the foundation of that which is internal in things in themselves. The internal state of substances cannot therefore consist in place, shape, contact, or motion, determinations which are all external relations, and we can ascribe to them no other than that whereby we internally determine our faculty of sense itself, that is to say, the state of representation. Thus then were constructed the monads, which were to form the elements of the universe, the active force of which consists in representation, the effects of this force being thus entirely confined to themselves. For the same reason, his view of the possible community of substances could not represent it but as a predetermined harmony, and by no means as a physical influence. For inasmuch as everything is occupied only internally, that is, with its own representations, the state of the representations of one substance 
could not stand in active and living connection with that of another, but some third cause operating on all without exception was necessary to make the different states correspond with one another. And this did not happen by means of assistance applied in each particular case. Sissema assistentia. But through the unity of the idea of a cause occupied and connected with all substances in which they necessarily receive according to the Leibnizian school, their existence and permanence. Consequently also reciprocal correspondence according to universal laws. Fourth, this philosopher's celebrated doctrine of space and time, in which he intellectualized these forms of sensibility, originated in the same delusion of transcendental reflection. If I attempt to represent by the mere understanding the external relations of things, I can do so only by employing the conception of their reciprocal action, and if I wish to connect one state of the same thing with another state, I must avail myself of the notion of the order of cause and effect and thus Leibniz regarded space as a certain order in the community of substances, and time as the dynamical sequence of their states. That which space and time possesses, proper to themselves and independent of things, he ascribed to a necessary confusion in our conceptions of them whereby that which is a mere form of dynamical relations is held to be self-existent intuition, antecedent even to things themselves. Thus space and time were the intelligible form of the connection of things, substances and their states, in themselves. But things were intelligible substances substantia noumena. At the same time, he made these conceptions valid of phenomena because he did not allow to sensibility a peculiar mode of intuition, but sought all, even the empirical representation of objects in the understanding, and left no sense naught but the despicable task of confusing and disarranging the representations of the former. But even if we could frame any synthetical proposition concerning things in themselves by means of the pure understanding, which is impossible, it could not apply to phenomena which do not represent things in themselves. In such a case, I should be obliged in transcendental reflection to compare my conceptions only under the conditions of sensibility, and so space and time would not be determinations of things in themselves, but of phenomena. What things may be in themselves I know not and need not know, 
because a thing is never presented to me otherwise than as a phenomenon. I must adopt the same mode of procedure with the other conceptions of reflection. Matter is substantia phenomenon. That in it which is internal I seek to discover in all parts of space which it occupies, and in all functions and operations it performs, and which are indeed never anything but phenomena of the external sense. I cannot therefore find anything that is absolutely, but only what is comparatively internal, and which itself consists of external relations. The absolutely internal in matter and as it should be according to the pure understanding, is a mere chimera, for matter is not an object for the pure understanding. But the transcendental object, which is the foundation of the phenomenon which we call matter, is a mere nesio quid the nature of which we could not understand even though someone were found able to tell us. For we can understand nothing that does not bring with it something in intuition corresponding to the expression employed. If by the complement of being unable to perceive the internal nature of things, it is meant that we do not comprehend by the pure understanding what the things which appear to us may be in themselves. It is a silly and unreasonable complaint. For those who talk thus really desire that we should be able to cognize, consequently to intuit, things without senses, and therefore wish that we possessed a faculty of cognition perfectly different from the human faculty, not merely in degree, but even as regards intuition and the mode thereof, so that thus we should not be men, but belong to a class of beings, the possibility of whose existence, much less their nature and constitution, we have no means of cognizing. By observation and analysis of phenomena, we penetrate into the interior of nature, and no one can say what progress this knowledge may make in time. But those transcendental questions, which pass beyond the limits of nature, we could never answer, even although all nature were laid open to us because we have not the power of observing our own mind with any other intuition than that of our internal sense. For herein lies the mystery of the origin and source of our faculty of sensibility, its application to an object and the transcendental ground of this unity of subjective and objective lie too deeply concealed for us who cognize ourselves only through the internal sense. Consequently, as phenomena, to be able to discover in our existence anything but phenomena 
the non-sensuous cause of which we at the same time earnestly desire to penetrate to. The great utility of this critique of conclusions arrived at by the process of mere reflection consists in its clear demonstration of the nullity of all conclusions respecting objects which are compared with each other in the understanding alone, while it at the same time confirms what we particularly insisted on, namely, that although phenomena are not included as things in themselves among the objects of the pure understanding, they are nevertheless the only things by which our cognition can possess objective reality, that is to say, which give us intuitions to correspond with our conceptions. When we reflect in a purely logical manner, we do nothing more than compare conceptions in our understanding to discover whether both have the same content, whether they are self-contradictory or not, whether anything is contained in either conception, which of the two is given, and which is merely a mode of thinking that given. But if I apply these conceptions to an object in general, in the transcendental sense, without first determining whether it is an object of sensuous or intellectual intuition, certain limitations present themselves which forbid us to pass beyond the conceptions and render all empirical use of them impossible. And thus, these limitations prove that the representation of an object as a thing in general is not only insufficient, but without sensuous determination, and independently of empirical conditions, self-contradictory. That we must therefore make abstraction of all objects, as in logic or admitting them, we must think them under conditions of sensuous intuition, that consequently the intelligible requires an altogether peculiar intuition which we do not possess and in the absence of which it is for us nothing, while on the other hand phenomena cannot be objects in themselves. For when I merely think things in general, the difference in their external relations cannot constitute a difference in the things themselves. On the contrary, the former presupposes the latter, and if the conception of one of two things is not internally different from that of the other, I am merely thinking the same thing in different relations. Further, by the addition of one affirmation, reality, to the other, the positive therein is really augmented and nothing is abstracted or withdrawn from it. Hence the real in things cannot be in contradiction with or opposition to itself, and so on. 
The true use of the conceptions of reflection in the employment of the understanding has, as we have shown, been so misconceived by Leibniz, one of the most acute philosophers of either ancient or modern times, that he has been misled into the construction of a baseless system of intellectual cognition, which professes to determine its objects without the intervention of the senses. For this reason, the exposition of the cause of the amphiboly of these conceptions, as the origin of these false principles, is of great utility in determining with certainty the proper limits of the understanding. It is right to say whatever is affirmed or denied of the whole of a conception can be affirmed or denied of any part of it, dictum de omni et nullo. But it would be absurd so to alter this logical proposition as to say whatever is not contained in a general conception is likewise not contained in the particular conceptions which rank under it. For the latter are particular conceptions for the very reason that their content is greater than that which is cogitated in the general conception. And yet the whole intellectual system of Leibniz is based upon this false principle, and with it must necessarily fall to the ground, together with all the ambiguous principles in reference to the employment of the understanding which have thence originated. Leibniz's principle of the identity of indiscernibles or indistinguishables is really based on the presupposition that if in the conception of a thing a certain distinction is not to be found, it is also not to be met with in things themselves, that consequently all things are completely identical, numero idem which are not distinguishable from each other as to quality or quantity in our conceptions of them. But as in the mere conception of anything, abstraction has been made of many necessary conditions of intuition, that of which abstraction has been made is rashly held to be non-existent and nothing is attributed to the thing but what is contained in its conception. The conception of a cubic foot of space, however I may think it, is in itself completely identical, but two cubic feet in space are nevertheless distinct from each other from the sole fact that their being in different places they are numero diversa, and these places are conditions of intuition, wherein the object of this conception is given, and which do not belong to the conception, but to the faculty of sensibility. 
in like manner there is in the conception of a thing no contradiction when a negative is not connected with an affirmative, and merely affirmative conceptions cannot in conjunction produce any negation. But in sensuous intuition, wherein reality, take for example motion, is given, we find conditions, opposite directions, of which abstraction has been made in the conception of motion in general, which render possible a contradiction or opposition, not indeed of a logical kind, and which from pure positives produce zero equal zero. We are therefore not justified in saying that all reality is in a perfect agreement and harmony because no contradiction is discoverable among its conceptions. Footnote 38. According to mere conceptions, that which is internal in the substratum of all relations or external determinations when, therefore, I abstract all conditions of intuition and confine myself solely to the conception of a thing in general, I can make abstraction of all external relations, and there must nevertheless remain a conception of that which indicates no relation, but merely internal determinations. Now it seems to follow that in everything, substance, there is something which is absolutely internal and which antecedes all external determinations, inasmuch as it renders them possible and that therefore is substratum in something which does not contain any external relations and is consequently simple. For corporeal things are never anything but relations, at least of their parts external to each other. And inasmuch as we know of no other absolutely internal determinations than those of the internal sense, this substratum is not only simple, but also analogously with our internal sense determined through representations, that is to say, all things are properly monads, or simple beings endowed with the power of representation. Now, all this would be perfectly correct if the conception of a thing were the only necessary condition of the presentation of objects of external intuition. It is, on the contrary, manifest that a permanent phenomenon in space, impenetrable extension, can contain mere relations and nothing that is absolutely internal and yet be the primary substratum of all external perception. By mere conceptions, I cannot think anything external without at the same time thinking something internal, for the reason that conceptions of relations presuppose given things, and without these are impossible. 
but as an intuition there is something, that is, space, which, with all it contains, consists of purely formal, or indeed, real relations, which is not found in the mere conception of a thing in general, and this presents to us the substratum which could not be recognized through conceptions alone, I cannot say, because a thing cannot be represented by mere conceptions without something absolutely internal, there is also in the things themselves which are contained under these conceptions and in their intuition nothing external to which something absolutely internal does not survive as the foundation. For when we have made abstraction of all the conditions of intuition, there certainly remains in the mere conception nothing but the internal in general, through which alone the external is possible. But this necessity, which is grounded upon abstraction alone, does not obtain in the case of things themselves in so far as they are given in intuition with such determinations as express mere relations, without having anything internal as their foundation. For they are not things of a thing which we can neither, for they are not things in themselves, but only phenomena. What we cognize in matter is nothing but relations. What we call its internal determinations are but comparatively internal. But there are some self-subsistent and permanent through which a determined object is given. That I, when abstraction is made of these relations, have nothing more to think does not destroy the conception of a thing as phenomenon, nor the conception of an object in abstracto, but it does away with the possibility of an object that is determinable according to mere conceptions, that is, of a nomenon. It is certainly startling to hear that a thing consists solely of relations, but this thing is simply a phenomenon and cannot be cogitated by means of the mere categories. It does itself consist in the mere relation of something in general to the senses. In the same way, we cannot cogitate relations of things in abstracto, if we commence with conceptions alone in any other manner than that one is the cause of determinations in the other, for that is itself the conception of the understanding or category of relation. But as in this case we make abstraction of all intuition, we lose altogether the mode in which the manifold determines to each of its parts its place, that is, the form of sensibility, space, and yet this mode antecedes all empirical causality. Footnote 38 
If anyone wishes here to have recourse to the usual subterfuge and to say that at least reality's nomina cannot be in opposition to each other, it will be requisite for him to adduce an example of this pure and non-sensuous reality, that it may be understood whether the notion represents something or nothing. But an example cannot be found except in experience which never presents to us anything more than phenomena, and thus the proposition means nothing more than that the conception which contains only affirmatives does not contain anything negative, a proposition nobody ever doubted. End footnote 38 if by intelligible objects we understand things which can be thought by means of pure categories without the need of the schemata of sensibility, such objects are impossible. For the condition of the objective use of all our conceptions of understanding is the mode of our sensuous intuition, whereby objects are given and if we make abstraction of the latter, the former can have no relation to an object. And even if we should suppose a different kind of intuition from our own, still our functions of thought would have no use or significance in respect thereof. But if we understand by the term objects of a sensuous intuition in respect of which our categories are not valid and of which we can accordingly have no knowledge, neither intuition nor conception. In this merely negative sense, nomina must be admitted. For this is no more than saying that our mode of intuition is not applicable to all things, but only to objects of our senses, that consequently its objective validity is limited, and that room is therefore left for another kind of intuition, and thus also for things that may be objects of it. But in this sense the conception of nomenon is problematical, that is to say, it is the notion of that it that it is possible, nor that it is impossible. Inasmuch as we do not know of a mode of intuition and a kind of conception, neither of which is applicable to a non-sensuous object, we are on this account incompetent to extend the sphere of our objects of thought beyond the conditions of our sensibility and to assume the existence of objects of pure thought, that is, of nomina, inasmuch as these have no true positive signification. For it must be confessed of the categories that they are not of themselves sufficient for the cognition of things in themselves, and without the data of sensibility, are mere subjective forms of the unity of the understanding. 
thought is certainly not a product of the senses, and in so far is not limited by them, but it does not therefore follow that it may be employed purely and without the intervention of sensibility, for it would then be without reference to an object and we cannot call a nominon an object of pure thought, for the representation thereof is but the problematical conception of an object for a perfectly different intuition and a perfectly different understanding from ours, both of which are consequently themselves problematical. The conception of a nominon is therefore not the conception of an object, but merely a problematical conception inseparably connected with the limitation of our sensibility. That is to say, the conception contains the answer to the question, quote, are there objects quite unconnected with and independent of our intuition? End quote. A question to which only an indeterminate answer can be given. That answer is, quote, inasmuch as sensuous intuition does not apply to all things without distinction, there remains room for other and different objects. End quote. The existence of these problematical objects is therefore not absolutely denied in the absence of the determinate conception of them, but as no category is valid in respect of them, neither must they be admitted as objects for our understanding. Understanding accordingly limits sensibility, without at the same time enlarging its own field while, moreover, it forbids sensibility to apply its forms and modes to things in themselves and restricts it to the sphere of phenomena. It cogitates an object in itself, only, however, as a transcendental object which is the cause of a phenomenon, consequently not itself a phenomenon and which cannot be thought either as a quantity or as reality, or as substance, because these conceptions always require sensuous forms in which to determine an object, an object, therefore, of which we are quite unable to say whether it can be met with in ourselves or out of us whether it would be annihilated together with sensibility, or, if this were taken away, would continue to exist. If we wish to call this object a nominon, because the representation of it is non-sensuous, we are at liberty to do so. But as we can apply it to none of the conceptions of our understanding, the representation is for us quite void, and is available only for indication of the limits of our sensuous intuition, thereby leaving at the same time an empty space 
which we are competent to fill by the aid neither of possible experience nor of the pure understanding. The critique of the pure understanding accordingly does not permit us to create for ourselves a new field of objects beyond those which are presented to us as phenomena, and to stray into intelligible worlds. Nay, it does not even allow us to endeavor to form so much as a conception of them. The specious error which leads to this, and which is a perfectly excusable one, lies in the fact that the employment of the understanding, contrary to its proper purpose and destination, is made transcendental, and objects, that is, possible intuitions, are made to regulate themselves according to conceptions, instead of the conceptions arranging themselves according to the intuitions on which alone their own objective validity rests. Now the reason of this again is that apperception, and with it thought, antecedes all possible determinate arrangement of representations. Accordingly, we think something in general and determinate on the one hand sensuously, but on the other distinguish the general and in abstracto represented object from this particular mode of intuiting it. In this case, there remains a mode of determining the object by mere thought, which is really but a logical form without content, which, however, seems to us to be a mode of the existence of the object in itself, nominon, without regard to intuition which is limited to our senses. Before ending this transcendental analytic, we must make an addition, which although in itself of no particular importance, seems to be necessary to the completeness of the system. The highest conception, with which a transcendental philosophy commonly begins, is the division into possible and impossible. But as all division presupposes a divided conception, a still higher one must exist, and this is the conception of an object in general problematically understood and without its being decided whether it is something or not, as the categories are the only conceptions which apply to the objects in general, the distinguishing of an object, whether it is something or nothing, must proceed according to the order and direction of the categories. 1 to the categories of quantity, that is, the conceptions of all, many, and one, the conception which annihilates all, that is, the conception of none, is opposed. And thus the object of a conception to which no intuition can be found to correspond is equal nothing. That is, it is a conception without an object, ends rationis, 
like Namana, which can not be considered possible in the sphere of reality, though they must not therefore be held to be impossible, or like certain new fundamental forces in matter, the existence of which is cogitable without contradiction, though as examples from experience are not forthcoming, they must not be regarded as possible. 2. Reality is something, negation is nothing, that is, a conception of the absence of an object, as cold, a shadow, nihil privativum. 3. The mere form of intuition without substance is in itself no object, but the merely formal condition of an object as phenomenon, as pure space and pure time. These are certainly something as forms of intuition, but are not themselves objects which are intuited, ends imaginarium. 4. The object of a conception which is self-contradictory is nothing because the conception is nothing, is impossible as a figure composed of two straight lines, nihil negativum. The table of this division of the conception of nothing the corresponding division of the conception of something does not require special description, must therefore be arranged as follows. Nothing as one, as empty conception without object, ends rationis. Two, three, empty object of empty intuition, a conception without object, nihil privativum ens imaginarium. Four, empty object, without conception, nihil negativum. We see that the ens rationis is distinguished from the nihil negativum, or pure nothing, by the consideration that the former must be reckoned among possibilities, because it is a mere fiction, though not self-contradictory, while the latter is completely opposed to all possibility, inasmuch as the conception annihilates itself. Both, however, are empty conceptions. On the other hand, the nihil privativum and ends imaginarium are empty data for conceptions. If light be not given to the senses, we cannot represent to ourselves darkness, and if extended objects are not perceived, we cannot represent space. Neither the negation nor the mere form of intuition can, without something real, be an object. End of section nineteen. Recording by Robert Scott, Mojo Move four one one dot com. 
M-O-J-O-M-O-V-E 411.com September the 17th, 2007